All right, well, we've got about three basic announcements for tonight. Number one is that this coming Saturday morning, uh, we're going to be having our men's prayer breakfast. And if you haven't been, then you have missed out on a lot of, lot of wonderful food that your doctor probably w- wouldn't approve of. But your tongues and your tummies will. So we have a good time, and we have a good time talking about various different aspects of the Lord, praying together and getting to know each other. So that's going to be at 7.30 uh, Saturday morning. And then we, after that, we have our deacons meeting. And then the second announcement is, um, well, let me get, you know, I've got to look at my phone here. There we go. Um, is that the lessons that I taught at Tucson Bible Church are now on the deanbibleministries.org website. And then I'll be gone a week from Friday Friday through Sunday. Scott Ulrich will be here that Sunday, but I'll be gone because I'm um, going up for an ordination at Preston City Bible Church. So um, everybody should make sure they're here that Sunday. When we have a guest speaker, it's I know there's an inclination, well... The main shepherd's not here. The food won't be quite as good. I'll just sleep late. But but we don't need to have somebody come and have a poor showing that doesn't glorify the Lord. So we should be here for that. And uh, that's it for, for announcements. So um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord and, if necessary, confess sin, admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few minutes, moments, I will um, open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, it's a wonderful time that we have to gather together with like-minded believers to study your word, to fellowship around your word and around your grace and what you have provided for us, coming to understand your word, that, that, that by studying your word we gain wisdom, we gain insight into understanding reality and the way things are that you have made them. Father, we pray too this morning as uh, Jim Myers has been back, but he's leaving Friday to go back to go back to Zambia for three weeks, and we pray for that ministry there, especially working with the um, Dilgal Assembly down in Livingstone with Char- Charles Masanda, and Father, we just pray for that ministry and the outreach that he has uh, in Zambia and the enormous numbers of people who need to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Father, we pray for this congregation that we might continue to be steadfast and faithful and that we may learn to grow to maturity, trusting in your word and realizing the truthfulness and veracity of your promises to us. And we pray that as we study tonight, that it will give us insight into how to think about things going on around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Judges. Judges chapter 19 to 21. The last three chapters in Judges, I know that some people are going to sing hallelujah when we finish Judges. It is not always the most encouraging book. It is a book for times like these, 
And one of the keys for studying Scripture is not so we learn how to um, feel better about things. Uh, one of the reasons for studying Scripture is not so that we just um, learn a lot more theology. But one of the reasons we study Scripture is to learn wisdom. Wisdom, scripturally defined, is skill at living, understanding what the issues of life are. And the issues of life have to do with understanding the patterns of sin and rebellion against God, the patterns of carnality, the consequences of carnality, the realities of arrogance and arrogance run amok in cultures, and so that we can be able to observe where God is blessing and where God is allowing the natural consequences of of uh, foolishness, as the writer of Proverbs says, uh, to, to he lets the natural consequences of, of foolishness have its have its way, and so we see this at the as we come to an end of in our study of of uh, judges that we see the in these last two episodes uh, we see the focus uh, is on the the apostasy that has arisen within the priesthood. We saw that in the previous two chapters, in chapters 17 and 18, where we have this uh, individual Micah, and Micah steals some money from his mother, so he's not too concerned with abiding by the Mosaic Law or the Ten Commandments. And then when she pronounces a curse on whoever stole the money, he gets all fearful because he's got he's picked up all this mysticism and he's got a syncretistic religion much like about 60 or 70% of Americans have a syncretistic uh, worldview and they pick and choose what parts of different worldviews they want to use and so that's what's happened at that time in Israel and we discovered that it's early on in the period of the judges not long after the conquest because this uh, Micah builds a little sanctuary, he constructs an idol with the m- money his mother gave him, and he has an ephod built, and he basically creates an alternate religion, totally in violation of the Mosaic Law. And so you see that the apostasy of this one family then impacts a priest, this Levitical priest, who's already on the road to apostasy because he's not at Shiloh where he should have been at the tabernacle, but he's wandering through uh, he's wandering through uh, Israel, and he comes up, meets Micah, and Micah entices him to come be my priest. You know, live here. I'll take care of your room and board and give you ten shekels of silver a, a, a year. And that was a, that was a great, great wage. And so he's, he's happy to stay there. And they are violating the Mosaic Law, which said that God would determine where the sanctuary was going to be. And God would determine what the rules for worship were going to be. And what they were doing is reflecting the theme of Judges, which is everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We saw that was true of the leaders in the six judges that we studied, and each one of them, each cycle got progressively worse. And then we see in these last two episodes that it's affecting the people and it's affecting the priesthood. And so this priest, who it turns out ironically to be the grandson of Moses, is instrumental for bringing an apostate, idolatrous religion into the tribe of Dan. And the Danites are happy. They they entice him to leave this character Micah. And they go north and they slaughter the inhabitants of this town called Laish. And they take it over and that's going to be theirs. And I mean, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But this is what happens when a nation slips its anchor to God's word and is cast adrift on the relativism of their of their beliefs. And so we see the same kind of thing being portrayed again in Judges chapters 19 to 21. And so we see that we can learn certain principles of wisdom that help us to discern what is going on around us. And we all know that it's not good. 
And we're seeing this, and it's discouraging, and I know some people just, oh, I wish we'd get through with judges. It's just not very uplifting. Well, I hate to say this. I am not a negative person. I'm one of the happiest, most optimistic people you know. But I'm afraid that the writing is on the wall, and we better read it, because where we're headed over the next 10 or 15 years isn't going to be pretty. And I don't know what it's going to be, but it's not going to be pretty. And we need to be prepared for it spiritually more than anything else. So we're going to look at anatomy of the collapse. And basically what I'm going to do is give us an overview tonight of these three chapters. So we see where it's going. Because there's just a tremendous amount of detail and a lot of stuff going on here. And if we don't see the big picture and understand what's happening, then... We're just going to get lost once we start looking at some of the details. So this is what we're doing. We're looking at this this anatomy of national collapse. Tonight we're going to learn about the impact of spiritual apostasy on the nation's divine institutions, the nation of Israel. Their divine institutions are being attacked. There's not a single divine institution today that is not being attacked forcefully in this nation. Now, what are the divine institutions? Let me remind you. The divine institutions are uh, absolute social structures that God has built into the nature of human relationships from the beginning of Genesis. They are not created by man. They were created and instituted by God. The first three occurred at the beginning of creation. And in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we see that God created man male and female, and he, they, we created them in his image and likeness and gave them several commands that they were to uh, be fruitful and multiply and they were to rule over his creation in his place. And when we get into the second chapter of Genesis, we understand that he gave man various commands to guard and keep the garden and to uh, name the animals. And that in the naming of the animals, God was giving an object lesson to Adam because all of the animals came by two by two. And they had a male sex and they had a female sex and none of them were confused about anything. And Adam wasn't confused about anything. And he was given the responsibility to name them. And so naming has a lot to do with, we learn in the Bible, it has a lot to do with something of the characteristics the attributes of that which is named. And so he's naming these animals. But one thing he noticed is there's a, there's a counterpart to each one. There's male and female. And he looks around and he's the only human. And so what God has done is to make him aware that he's missing something. And if we were to look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28... What The way God puts this is that they are to be fruitful and multiply, and they are to uh, fill the earth and subdue the earth. Now, Adam couldn't do that by himself. So he's wondering, how in the world am I going to fulfill this, this obligation all by myself? And so God says that, and he's saying, how do I multiply when it's just me? And so God provided a woman and created the woman from his side so that there would be a recognition that, that they were of the same source and they, they were related. Uh, they were all, they were both humans. One couldn't say, well, I'm evolved over here and you evolved over there and then we just happen to have body parts that would go together. No, it's a design by God. And so, uh, the, uh, first divine institution was related to the commands and especially the prohibition uh, not to eat from the one this one tree in the garden. So that's personal or individual responsibility and that we are all individually responsible to God for the choices that we make in life. So God created us with volition, with the ability to make choices and especially 
in the realm of that which is moral and ethical and spiritual. And the second divine institution is marriage, where God created the woman to be the assistant to the man in the uh, common objective of fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing, because man is not an animal. I know that your first grade, second grade, third grade teachers all the way up the line said that you were, that human beings were animals. No, they are not. They were separate, created separately from the animals. We did not descend from the animals, but that we were created in order to glorify God and to uh, rule over the planet in his place as his substitute. We'll get into a lot of this later on when we start our interlocked series. So that's the first divine institution is personal responsibility. We're all accountable to God. Second is marriage, that God created marriage so the man and woman could, could glorify God together. I don't care why you thought you got married. The biblical reason for your marriage is to glorify God. And the reason most couples have marriage problems is because either neither of them is trying to glorify God or one of them doesn't understand that that's the mission for their marriage. But that's the mission for every single marriage is to glorify God and to fulfill his mandates. And that is one way that's done is through um, having children and family. That's the third divine institution. And so it is the family is God's intended um, school to teach and to train the uh, infants and as they grow up to carry on the mission from their from their parents. God knew that Adam could not subdue the earth, Adam and Eve could not subdue the earth, that they were going to have to have generations of children in order to subdue the earth. And so that was what the vision was. But, of course, they disobeyed God, and as a result of that, you had the fall. And that brought sin into the human human race. And so what, we, what we've seen when we studied the divine institutions before is that they're foundational to everything else. And that those three divine institutions were given before there was sin, so their purpose was not to restrict sinfulness, it was to promote uh, prosperity and success within the mission of God to subdue the earth. And then we go fast forward, we come up to the flood of Noah, and by then the earth is pop, has a population of about four or five uh, billion people because you have multiple, maybe as many as nine generations living together at the same time. People weren't dying, so that made uh, uh, the world was uh, heavily populated. But the thoughts of man were evil continuously. It's what, that's what God God, uh, that's God's evaluation in Genesis chapter 6. And so he decides that he needs to hit the reset button and start all over again. But there were eight who were righteous. They were believers. They were untainted by the uh, sons of God uh, entering into and taking uh, wives as, as uh, taking uh, human, uh, human women as wives. And so they were uh, given instructions to build an ark. God wiped out the population with water. And afterward, when Noah and his family got off the ark, uh, God entered into a covenant with them. It's a modification of the creation covenant and the covenant after the fall. And in that, he establishes another divine institution, which is human government. He's delegating to man the responsibility to govern and adjudicate, and adjudicate and to punish criminality, to restrict the evil and the sin that was on the planet. But that didn't do so well, and as they spread out, uh, they, uh, some of them spread out, but most of them congregated around Babel, 
And when they congregated around Babel, they decided, well, we don't want to go through a flood again, so let's build a tower to heaven so we can escape any future punishments that God's going to give. And so God came down, looked around, and said, well, we can't have this international globalism going on that's just self-destructive. So he scattered their languages. Now that's, uh, so you have, that, that's going to lead to nations and borders. And so that's established by God. So you have the first three divine institutions of personal responsibility, responsibility toward God, marriage and family, to promote prosperity and to promote success. Then you have government and uh, nations in order to restrain sin. And then in the 12th chapter, God calls out Abraham and says that anyone who blesses you, I will bless. It doesn't matter if they're a believer or an unbeliever, if they're uh, wise or if they're a fool. If they bless you, I will bless them. If they curse you, I will curse them. So that's like the other institutions in that it relates to every single human being. That's the framework. So what we see when we go to um, these last chapters is a breakdown in... Uh, in the first three divine institutions, personal responsibility, marriage, and family. And when those three divine institutions go, you've got problems. What is the purpose of those first three divine institutions? Success, prosperity. What happens when those go? No success, no prosperity. And so this is a problem that we're going to see here that specifically both marriage and uh, family are compromised. But spiritually, the nation has been apostate. So that is what drives the failure of everything else. Once they become apostate, then the divine institutions begin to crumble. And we've been watching this historically for about the last hundred years. Now, a lot of people didn't weren't awake enough to realize what was happening a hundred years ago. Some people were, but that was when you had the big modernist fundamentalist controversy in America where most of the major denominations were going liberal and throwing out the Bible. And in its place, you found Origin of Species by Darwin. You found uh, Sigmund Freud and you found Karl Marx. And that became the basis for trying to build a kingdom on earth apart from God. So the second thing we're going to see is the anatomy of national self-destruction. How does This story is given to us not to scare us, not to discourage us, not to depress us, not to make us think, oh, it's just always bad news, but to give us the wisdom to be able to discern what is happening around us socially and culturally and what its con- uh, what its consequences are going to be. So we have to understand that. And then third, we're going to see how the decisions of individuals within a nation impact the whole nation. Because what we saw in with Micah was, first of all, his mother... Uh, is going to has has this money that she's dedicated to God, but but it's kind of iffy whether it has to do with any biblical things or not. That disappears, and so she's going to give her son part of the money to build an idol. So we know that she's already apostate. So you got one apostate mother, then her son becomes apostate, then he is going to bring in a priest who will be apostate and from that little microcosm of that family it brings apostasy to the whole tribe of Dan and they go up north and the northern kingdom will never really recover from that apostasy it permeates their future sometimes it's stronger sometimes it's less but that 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 uh, sanctuary that he builds that they build up in Dan is going to be where um, uh, Jeroboam is going to build a an idol when he separates the ten northern uh, tribes away from the southern tribes of Judah. 
And so this sets the stage, and it all ultimately culminates in the collapse of the nation, the destruction of the northern kingdom under the Assyrian conquest in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom uh, is overrun by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. So this is, this is what we're looking at. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand a little bit about the structure of these, uh, these three chapters. First of all, we're given a background uh, to this horrific attack. Uh, one of the things that I'll get to in a minute is to understand that you have these basic characters that are here in this, um, uh, in this uh, episode. You have a Levitical priest who does not have a name, and then you have uh, his concubine. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit. And um, she does not have a name. And then uh, the others are nameless as well. And there's a reason for that is because they're being, it's a literal historical event, but they're being used as representatives of what is going on throughout the culture. And so there is this brutal, brutal, horrific attack on this Levite's concubine. So you get the background information in the first nine verses. Then in verses 10 through 28, we're going to see a tremendous amount of detail on the crime that occurs there and what happens to his concubine. And then we see how he responds to it and sends out just a a macabre and grotesque alarm throughout all of the nation that is going to shock them and they are going to send troops to Gibeah where they are to respond to this horrific attack that has occurred and then as a result of that there will be a national uh, implosion that's created by this and this takes us down through uh, chapter chapter 21. So that's the organization and the structure. Now, one of the other things I want to point out as we look at this in kind of an overview is that what is being shown here in these two episodes is that they have violated the two greatest commandments. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. What is the, the where you have the lawyer who comes to Jesus and he says in Matthew 22:35 the lawyer uh, one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him and saying teacher what is or which is the great commandment of the law and then Jesus said in verse 37 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and great commandment so Jesus obviously shows that there is a scale among these commandments. And the greatest is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you've got a minute, just uh, turn to Exodus chapter 20, and I want to uh, point something out there. That's where we have the Ten Commandments. And we all know that the Ten ten Commandments, as the Ten Commandments, are not valid for today because they are part of the Constitution of Israel. And just as nobody in this country is held to account for the Constitution of France, and no one in France is held to account according to the Constitution of the United States, nobody in the church, the body of Christ, is under the Mosaic Law. That's very clear in what we studied in Ephesians chapter 2, verse is uh, about 14 to 17, that Christ abolished the law on the cross. Okay? Now, he didn't abolish the morality that's behind the law. He abolished the law. Now, the law did not make murder a sin. The law did not make adultery a sin. The law did not make false witness a sin. The law was reflecting what had always been true according to the morality that God had established. But at the beginning of these Ten Commandments, God is going to lay down the fundamental law 
which is that he alone is God. And we read in chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's, he shows what he can do. His power was made evident dur- during that. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it, it, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but Protestants divide it one way, the Ten Commandments one way, Roman Catholics another way, Jews another way, so there's about three different ways that they divide these up. But nearly everyone agrees that at the beginning here, we have the, the uh, first um, uh, commandment. And that verse 3 and verse 4 go together. You shall have no other gods, no other Elohim before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. What did, what did Micah do? He built a carved image, same language in the Hebrew. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, that's the first commandment. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that the first commandment, he summarizes it as, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then as he's answering this this lawyer, he says, and the second is like it. So the second isn't stated here in Exodus 20, but it summarizes the rest of the the Ten Commandments. Uh, they say, it goes on to say, uh, as part of the first one, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What that means is not what most people think it means. It's not using Jesus' name as profanity. It's not using God's name as part of a, a, a prefix to a to profanity. It is saying, this is what God told me to do when God has not told you to do it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. This is God's will for my life. When God has not given direct revelation to you that it is God's will, it is assigning God's name to a cause that God has not assigned his name to. That's what the, that's what it is fundamentally discussing. And then we have the Sabbath day. We come to the other set, the next set of commandments, honor your father and your mother, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you not, shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant, female servant, or his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. All of that is summarized as loving your neighbor as yourself. So if you're committing murder, if you're committing adultery, if you're stealing, if you're bearing false witness, if you are coveting what your neighbor has, that is a violation of the the summary of loving your neighbor as yourself. So what basically happens is that in Judges 17 and 18, the episode with the Levitical priest and the idol and the tribe of Dan is showing a violation of the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by violating it, they are leading the nation into apostasy. Then, when we look at Judges 19 to 21, what we are seeing is the other side of the coin, and that is a violation of the Second Amendment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice what Jesus then says. So see, this summary here of the law isn't my interpretation, isn't some theologians' interpretations. This was Jesus' summary of the law. So so that has weight that nobody else has. He says that you summarize it these two ways. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What he is saying is 
everything that you find in the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and everything you find in the prophets. In the English, we organize it according to the former prophets, and the former prophets are Joshua all the way through uh, Esther, and the latter prophets are the what we'd also call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel wasn't part of the Nevi'im, that's the Hebrew for prophets. It was part of the writings because he didn't have the office of prophet, he had the gift of prophecy. So Jesus is saying everything that's taught in the law and the prophets, there were three sections to the uh, Hebrew Bible. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, then the Nevi'im, or the prophets, which we'd call the former and the latter prophets, and then the poetry sections, the wisdom books, those were just called the writings along with, with Daniel. That was part of the writings. And often all of it, the thir- what we have is 39 books. The Jews have, I think, the way they, because they combine them. So we have First and Second Samuel. That's because it didn't all fit on one scroll. So you had first scroll and the second scroll. Same thing with first Kings, second Kings, things like that. So when you look at the Hebrew Bible, they had 22 books. But it's the same material. It just organized a little differently. And so what Jesus is saying is everything in the Old Testament hangs on these two commands. In other words, if you fail at either one of them, the whole of the content crumbles. It doesn't have any help. It's no help to you. It just becomes empty human religion. Now, we look at that second commandment, and I've talked about this, and we'll talk about this some more in Sunday morning, but we're talking about the command to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second half of uh, uh, Leviticus. Actually, it's part of Leviticus 1918, for some reason I had a mental glitch and put 1934 up there. But 1918 uh, says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself in the last part of it. The first part has to do with not taking vengeance. The last part says love your neighbor as yourself. This is reiterated in slightly different words. In 1934, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers. So in that phrase, you love him as yourself, we see an echo of Leviticus 19.18. Now, some people may say, well, that's a command from the law. That's from the Old Testament. What does that have to do with me as a church-age believer? It's not in the New Testament. You know, there's a certain segment of Christians, unfortunately, who think that the Old Testament is irrelevant to the New Testament. The problem with that is you can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. It's foundational. Uh, It's interesting. God went through from 1440... 7 B.C., when he begins to reveal a lot of this to Moses, I think he spent most of the next 40 years writing it all out. But God goes from roughly 1446, when Moses finishes the Pentateuch. Job may have been written before, nobody knows. All the way up to the last book, Malachi, which is written around 444 B.C. So you got a 1,000 years that God is revealing information to be uh, canonized in the Scripture so that the human race, dumb as they are, blind as they are, would hopefully recognize the Messiah when he came. And so you see what most modern Christians do is, oh, we don't need all that Old Testament. That was an evil God. He was so judgmental. He was so bad. We don't need all of that. Let's just go to Jesus in love. Well, you can't understand Jesus in love if you don't understand those other 39 books. And you really have to pay attention to them. So we have this command. And so people say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, look at all these verses I've listed. These are just the verses in the New Testament that reiterate Leviticus 19.18b verbatim, which means that it's quoted and applied 
to church-age believers. Matthew 19, 19, 22, 39, Mark 12, 30-33, Luke 10, 27. Somebody may say, well, those are in the Gospels. That's before the church age. Yes, that's right. But in Romans 13, 8 through 10, uh, Paul reiterates this so that we can't escape it. We can't get out from under it. He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another. Now, we studied that. Loving one another is not loving your neighbor. Loving one another is, Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Who's he talking to? He's talking to 11 believers, the disciples. You love one another. He's not talking about loving unbelievers. He's talking about love one another as I have loved you. That's not the same as love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, the comparison is different. Everybody loves themselves. uh, Even out of their sin nature, they're self-lovers. But God knows that in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so they couldn't, There was no way they're going to be able to do what Jesus said. But when Jesus says love one another, he's talking about loving other believers. And when it's quoted in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that love is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not something that you can gen up on your own. It's something that has to come as a result of spiritual growth. So... Yes, those are in the Gospels, but you have passages like Romans thirteen eight through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, other believers. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is applying that directly to church-age believers. And then in Galatians 5.14, he does it again to the Galatians. Now, he's arguing against legalism in Galatians because they had succumbed to the legalism of the Judaizers. But he applies this to them. He says, you know, it's still true. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James comes along and he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. So you have seven times in the New Testament that this command is cited in application to believers because we are to not only love one another, that is other believers, as Christ loved us, but we're still to love the unbelievers, the, our neighbors, the people we rub shoulders with every day, We're to love them as we love ourselves. That's still applicable. So this is the second commandment, and this is what falls apart in Judges uh, 19, 20, and 21, and it ends up in civil war. Now let's stop and think a minute. What's going on in the Western civilization? Let's not just pick on the United States or Canada where it's worse or Australia where it's worse or any number of places in Europe where it's worth, just Western civilization as as a whole. Have we violated the first and greatest commandment? Are we, we as a culture honoring God? Are we loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. What are we worshiping? We're worshiping self. We're worshiping the details of life. We're worshiping success and money, the things that money can buy. We're worshiping uh, entertainment. We're worshiping feeling good. So we use drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other things to make ourselves feel better because life is pretty miserable. And then we're just getting immersed into a lot of uh, unrealistic thoughts, fantasy thoughts, psychotic thoughts. You think that you can, you're a man and you can become a woman. Not a chance. So this is a problem. We're into mental idolatry. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping self. We're not full of the Spirit. We're full of ourselves. So this is what happens. And in the Bible, the violation of the first commandment is idolatry. And idolatry is not only condemned throughout the Old Testament, but also throughout the New Testament. These are all the passages that specifically condemn idolatry. 
Colossians 3, 5 says the same thing they all say. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. The, the greed for money is idolatry. You're thinking money is going to do for you what only, only God can do. So this is a problem. We have violated the first and greatest commandment, which is that, and we're, we're ignoring God, rejecting God, and then we are also not loving one another or loving our neighbor as, as we love ourselves. And so we have this apostasy, and apostasy always precedes the collapse of law and order and the collapse of culture, always. First, it's apostasy because you get away from absolutes. Once you get away from absolutes, you're just like everybody in the period of the judges. You're just, you're just uh, doing what's right in your own eyes. And everybody's doing what's right in their eyes, and everybody has a different opinion of what's right. And so as we begin our study here, we read, And it came to pass in those days... When there was no king in Israel. Now, I've taught on that phrase so many times, y'all can probably teach it back to me, but I know that, that there's somebody that probably hasn't gotten it yet. It's amazing how, how you have different situations, and after the 29,000th time that you've said it, somebody goes, Oh, I finally got it. It's amazing happens all the time. The rest of you are bored stiff hearing it, but there's one person here who hadn't gotten it yet. And so it came to pass in those days, and remember, this is written early. This isn't written, it comes at the end of the book, but remember what happened in, in eight, 17 and 18 happened very close to the beginning because it's the, the priest is Moses' grandson, so that's got to be at the early part of the period. So uh, early on, they rejected God who was designated to be the king according to the Constitution. He is the king over Israel. And so they've rejected him, and so there's no king, there's no ultimate authority. And what happens is things get so bad in Israel. They get so bad, and you see all these horrible things happening here, that when you get into the book of Samuel, and we studied that, the first seven or eight chapters of Judges, you don't have a king. You still have a judge, Samuel, but the, he's getting old and the people reject him. And when they reject him, they want to have a king like everybody else. And this is also a trend. When absolutes break down, what comes in is anarchy and chaos. And in order to solve the problem of anarchy and chaos, the only choice without God is to turn to tyranny. Only a strong leader like Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, only a strong leader can come in and suppress the chaos through fear, intimidation, mass murder, all kinds of horrible things. And the order is restored. People talked about how wonderful it was in Germany uh, after the uh, runaway inflation of the early 20s in the Weimar Republic. And that was so bad that people would take wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks to buy one loaf of bread. Inflation was so bad. So Hitler came in within a couple of years. All that was over with. But then you had Hitler. See, that's what happens. Tyranny, And so they were willing to ignore God and replace him with a human king just to solve their chaos problem and give up all their freedom. So it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there's a certain Levite. We don't know his name. He's just a Levitical priest. Remember, you have those who are... Uh, Aaronic priests, they're direct, direct descendants of Aaron. Those are the functional priests. And the Levitical priests were helpers to the Aaronic priests. And their, their job was to teach the Bible, teach the Torah to the people. 
And he is staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. So you got these Levites that are wandering around. They're not at Shiloh where they should be. They're just wandering around the hill country. So that's our map. Again, this is the territory down here in the southern part of the northern kingdom. See, this right, roughly here is the dividing line. The south is Judah and Simeon. And to the north, you have what will become the future uh, kingdom of Israel. So this is Ephraim right here. So this Levite is staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So if we go back to the map, Bethlehem is right here in this little circle. Jerusalem is just about five miles to the north up here. So he goes down here, and then he is going to go back up to Ephraim and that tribal area. Now, we have trouble because we don't understand what a concubine is, and because we don't understand what a concubine is, people just don't grasp this. A concubine is not the same as a wife. Kind of, sort of, but not quite. In Old Testament times, a female slave or a mistress could be elevated to the position of a concubine, which is a legal position, but it's not on the same level as a wife. It was a substitute wife. Um, she could have legal intercourse with her husband. And so she had, but she still has this, uh, inferior, uh, inferior status. Concubines were protected by law, so they could not be sold off. They could not be maltreated. They had a certain job security, if you put it that way. But there was some, uh, they were protected by, in the law from inhumane and callous, uh, callous treatment. So he takes a concubine. He's not, it, it's almost like marriage, but it's not quite. And then, uh, there are going to be some, uh, some problems. Uh, that develop from that. But before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about looking at this, this whole section. This is a long section. It starts 19-1, and it goes down to the end of 21. It's almost 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, almost 5 full pages of text. It's 103 verses. And it's the only narrative in the book of Judges that is um, uh, that is almost as long as the story of Gideon, including that of his son Abimelech. So the longest section is Gideon. The second longest is this. Now, when you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, one of the things that is a basic law of, of Bible study is called the law of proportion. So if the Holy Spirit is really wants you to pay attention to something, it's going to be spread out. And all of a sudden, he's going to slow down and give us all these details in these last three chapters of just this one episode. And it's the second longest episode in, in Judges. So people read it going, God, this is gross, this is horrible, why do we have to study all this? Because God took a lot of time to have all these details written down, not to gross you out, but because there are important lessons to learn. This is the kind of passage that Paul is talking about in Second Timothy uh, 3.16 where he says, all Scripture, all Scripture, Wait a minute, there's an asterisk there, except for Judges 19 to 21. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for correct reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equ- furnished and equipped for every good work. So we need to pay attention to this. It's going to give us wisdom in understanding uh, the times. And so... Uh, we look at this law of proportion. Whenever you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden be sensitive to the fact that the pace speeds up or the pace slows down, that, that God wants you to pay attention to certain things and to watch over things. And that's how, the, that's how it was revealed to us. And the same thing with the law of proportion. 
So what's happening here is the end of this book is emphasizing the internal destruction of the nation of Israel because they have violated the greatest commandment and the second is like this. They have rejected God as the absolute point of reference and they have no anchor anymore. There's no sense of what's right and what's wrong. It's just everybody's uh, opinion. So what has happened here is the promotion of the arrogant skills. I've added something. I said that because some people, you, oh, I've seen that before, and they mentally take a vacation. So we start off with self-absorption. We are born self-centered. That's why in the um, in the law of love, it's to love your neighbor as yourself, because we already do that. We're born self-absorbed. Self-absorbed leads to self-indulgence. It's all about me, so I need to satisfy what I want right now. And we lose, we go into self-gratification and self-justification. And then self-justification leads to self-deception. We do something, we know it's wrong, but we're going to justify it. We're, we're going to rationalize it. It's really okay because of yada, yada, yada. And then, what, what are we doing? Well, we're just deceiving ourselves that something that's wrong is right. And then what's happening is we're making ourselves into God. We're idolizing ourselves, and this is self-deification. And this is just a cycle. It just continues. And if the Lord allows and we, we continue in this enough, our hearts become hardened. And pretty soon we're looking in the mirror and we're thinking we're one of 125 different genders and that we can actually change that. And that's called psychosis. And we're in a nation that is legitimizing psychotic behavior. And that's never going to end well. But what then happens is we have certain results. Result one is self-pity. Things don't work out, so we have our own little pity party about how, oh, nobody likes us, everybody hates us, God's always down on me, I'm going to go eat dirt. We have self-admiration. We become the center of our universe. We love ourselves, so we're going to promote ourselves. We have self-love. It's always present. We have self-confidence rather than God-confidence. Now, I know there's a good sense in which you have self-confidence. You feel like you can do what you're setting out to do. But ultimately, our confidence needs to be in God, not in me. You know, Moses had to learn that. He said, God, I don't want to go speak. You know, I've got this little stutter and I can't, I've got this little problem. I can't really speak well. And God says, okay, well, you're going to go and now you're going to be silent and not going to get a chance to talk because I'm going to make Aaron your, your mouthpiece. And so he misses out on, on blessing. So we need to be confident that God can handle the situation. And then we're also become self-righteous. And there's nothing worse in our current world than the self-righteousness of the left. Leftism is a religion, and they are self-righteous, and they judge everybody else. If you don't go along with them, they're going to cancel you. They're going to attack you in every way they possibly can and run you down and try to just hide you away somewhere, especially, and it's going to come to this, especially if you're a Christian, because then you've got the Holy Spirit convicting them on the inside, and they really don't like that. So these are the problems that result from arrogance. So what I wanted to do at this point was to do an overview, but that is going to take a long time uh, to do that, at least another 20 or 30 minutes. So I'm going to wait and do that next time. But we have to have that flyover. We're understanding the basic principles from tonight. The, the basic principles that come out of this are the ones that emphasize the fact that, that apostasy leads to the destruction of a nation. When you, up, when you depart from God, then it results in criminality, it results in economic chaos, it results in wars, it results in all kinds of problems. That's because you've uh, divorced yourself from God. 
And so we're going to see that in, in this whole episode. And where it ends up is in a bloody civil war that almost un- completely annihilates the tribe of Benjamin. They're down to 600 warriors, and they can't find a wife for any of them. Without wives, they can't go forward as a tribe. And so they have to go to another tribe to find 600 virgins in order to give them to the uh, 600 survivors of the tribe of Benjamin so that they can go forward as a tribe and have a future. So where does it go? You leave God. Then all of a sudden what happens is you, you're not loving one another as the scripture says because it's all about me and so I'm, I'm absorbed with self-centeredness and selfishness and self-righteousness. And then that eventually is going to lead to polarization uh, with other people and that then leads to civil war and the complete breakdown of law and order in a civilization. It's happened again and again and again in in the history of the world. Now, I know that's not pleasant. That's not going to make you go home and say, oh, wasn't that a good, wonderful message tonight? But we have to understand, uh, you know, the, the, we have to, uh, the tribe of Issachar are praised in Chronicles because they understood their times. We have to understand our times so that we can have wisdom and correctly apply Scripture. So we'll come back next time and do do the flyover. Father, thank you for this time we've had to look at these things. And as products of our culture, we can see a lot of this in our own thinking at different times in our lives where we've just uh, ignored you, denied you, and then it's led to uh, selfishness, self-centeredness, arrogance, and uh, just breakdown of many things in our lives. And we recognize that that apart from you, there's no hope. Apart from you, there's no stability. And even though there may be chaos and instability all around us, when we are when we are protected by you, by your, you are our rock and our fortress and our high tower. Everything around us can be in chaos, but we are going to be in the eye of the storm, rested and protected by you. And, Father, yet we need to make good, wise, sound decisions in the process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.